Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I am Mary Catherine Ham. I'm here with my co-host, Vic Mattis. We are your morning show for any hour. Vic, how you doing on this beautiful, unseasonably warm day that I hear is getting up to like 80 degrees? You know, it's easy to get caught up in the whole climate change thing and think to ourselves, man, you know, it's really getting warm out there. That's a bad sign. But of course, it's just here. I was talking to an old friend of mine, Terry Eastland up in Maine. It's snowing up there. Last week, it was 16 below. And I believe in the Midwest, they're having a huge snowstorm out there. So I think we're this little pocket and we're about to drop in the next day or two to possibly snow on Saturday. But it's great. It's the kind of weather I do want to go out and, you know, in my, I have it in my mind now. Oh, this is good running weather. When mm-hmm. I think, but, but of course, once you start the run, you're like, why am I doing this? No, you're like, I ruined this perfectly good day. Yeah. Couldn't I just sit outside and have a drink? It has to be yes. running. And you're huffing. I'm huffing. I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I'm huffing and puffing anyway. But no, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And really quickly, I wanted to say that I am also feeling a little bit these days enlightened, enlightened. And, and the reason is, I forgot to mention this, in our trip to Jersey, up and down I-95, we, we now have Apple Music free for six months, right? Okay. And so- Set a calendar reminder to that's right, because cancel that, that sucker. You're going to pay an arm and a leg. But it, we just decided, the kids are old enough, you know, they're like 15, 13. How about for the trip, everyone takes a turn, 45 minutes, guest DJ. 45 oh. minutes, whatever you want to play. Nobody's going to complain. 45 minutes, whatever you want. And it was really interesting because I personally made the mistake of wanting to listen to Phil Collins's album, No Jacket Required. Okay. Which is not as good as I remember. I mean, there's a handful of songs, but there are like, no, no, I swear it gets better. After I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, track five. Everyone's, everyone's like, whoa, what is this? You know? And in my mind, it's, you know, there's, there's a few good songs on there, but it's not like the entire album. Was. But I remember at the time. So that was the thing. Kate was very funny. She played Squeeze, which is a great 80s band, and some other things that we share in common. So that's nice. Erasure. Who doesn't like Erasure? Nice. From our age group. And my son, he was playing some patriotic songs in country. Country music. Love Robert, that kid. I, I looked for it. It was a song that I'd never heard before called The Armadillo Jackal by Robert Earl Keane. Check that out. It is... Quite something. I love Robert Earl Keane. You're kidding I mean, me. I've never, I have to admit, that's not in my wheelhouse. I'm not familiar with him at well, all. Well, I'm surprised it's in Michael's wheelhouse, and that is amazing. He's great. He heard it, like either a classmate or a teacher talking about it and listening to it on a trip or so something. So, a, a, just a sad aside about Robert Earl Keane and myself, I went to a Robert Earl Keane concert. In oh my the, gosh. In the heart of of COVID times, like in, I believe it was the year of our Lord, 2020. Wow. And he was doing concerts because he is a man from Texas. Yes. And the Birchmere, one of the braver places around here, was holding concerts. Yes. And so when Robert O'Keefe came to town, my friend flew in, who also loves him, and we went together to an indoor place where we were seated with strangers, tables in an intimate environment, and wow. went to a concert. And it was fantastic. And I'm so glad I went because his last ever tour was this past year oh my gosh and i had tickets again to the birchmere and i had hand foot and mouth and i could oh, not go and i had right. to sell nasty. them yeah oh my so, gosh robert your, your kid is on the right track yeah i guess so. i'll have to let him know that my my daughter 
played music that I feel now I'm hip to, which is, and I, I had to look it up because I had forgot the name. It was a Dua Lipa or Lipa? Lipa? Lipa, yeah. Lipa's Don't Start Now and Levitating. A song called Sunroof by yes. Yure? Yure? Yeah, my, it, my kids like, love that song. Really? Okay. Here's the worst part about it because I'm like, and I said, hey, you know, this is pretty good. You know what the first thing I wanted to say that would have made me a very, very old person? The first thing that I, was going to come out of my mouth was, hey, this song has a nice beat. Yeah. Isn't that what old people no, say? You want to, no, what you want to say yeah. is, this is a bop. You can say that. Oh, this is a bop. Mm-hmm, this is okay. a bop. Right. And you can also say, this slaps, kids. Hold on, let me write this down. Kids. Oh, this, this, really, this really slaps, kids. Oh, now you're, gonna you're not setting like... me up. Are you setting me up? I'm writing it down. Really this not. They sound slaps. nerdy, but they're, yeah, but they're, I, they're okay, correct. Now, the, the kids with the slang and the internet, it, it, re, it cycles very quickly. So these could be out within days. That's right. That's right. That's right. Plus, okay. you're, you're definitely going to be like Steve Buscemi walking up with a skateboard. Hello. All right. Hello. <laughs> Great uh, but that's okay. okay. That's, that's okay. right. So that's, that's, that's what you're that, there that, for. That, that's right. That's right. So really, I'm learning these things, and and so I'm feeling enlightened. How are you doing? I'm good. I actually discovered something that I've been subjecting my kids to recently on Spotify. You know how you pick a song, and then they'll there's a radio station that's yes. sort of created by it. Yes. I went looking for a Donovan song the other day. I know sure. this is like before my before my time, but this is my father's. I like Donovan musical education unto me. I went looking for a Donovan song and it turned into Donovan radio and Donovan radio is fantastic. It's like Ooh. crimson and clover and all these uh-huh. sort of like pseudos, like a little psychedelic. Yes. Rock, yeah, yeah. Well, that's very pretty Donovan. smooth vibes. I love it. I've been making my mellow yellow. I've been making my kids yes. listen to this sunshine uh, Superman. And they always call it whenever I turn on my music. And there's a wide range okay. of old music that sure. that qualifies. I imagine you're very eclectic. I am. Yeah, it, I would say to a to an extreme degree, probably. But they there's a wide range of music that qualifies. But they call it. Ugh, Mama iTunes is on again. That's its own station now. It's called Mama iTunes. Mama, that's that's what they call everything that I play. But oh, you know what? I, my father gave me a great musical education, pop musical yeah. education, country uh, rock. All, you know, many years before my time. And then it's, I've brought I, it all the way through. I now, try to so. force the kids to listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and Frank Sinatra. But, but Don, Don, Donovan is very, he was part of that, you know, he was part of that Maharishi, Maheshyogi exactly. group, shall we say, in India. Interesting fella. But nevertheless, you know what? Your kids would probably be surprised if they, if they, you know, they refer to this as Mama iTunes, right? They would be surprised had they been on the cruise ship where you and I were with our friends for a weekly standard cruise ship. And do you remember after like dinner and like, you know, some socializing, we're like, we were all like, let's get out of here. And we all went to the dance club on the show. Oh yeah. Yeah. And some song came on and I don't remember what it was, but you put on the moves. Yeah. I'm not shy about a dance club. And I'm not shy at a a wedding. No, no. And you, you, it was the moves you learned in high school. I was like, wow, those are some serious moves. I remember thinking that, wow. Wow, she's, they were moves. And I remember our friend John McCormick had to kind of protect you from a, a cruise goer who was a little too you know, interested. But, yes. you know, you have that effect on the cruise goers. John, very, John, very gallant yes, helping me yes, out. Yes, he was. I was very um, amused to watch the whole thing. <laughs> oh, those were the days. So I have been this week setting all of my 
summer plans up because oh boy. Yeah. it took me years of parenting to realize that you have to have summer cap- camp done by February. And right. that is... It's not the first week of June. Oh, no. You can't no. jump in in no, June, my friend. It's over. It's done. So <laughs> this is painful to me because I have trouble committing to things ahead of time. And, you know, marking off entire weeks is physically painful for me. Like, but what if we want to do something else? (laughs) Yeah, I get it. So we are marking them off. I'm looking for, you know, we got some options. We got drama and acting camps. We got horseback riding camps. We got fencing camps. One of my kids wants to fence. Sure, sure. So I'm shopping around for all of that, trying to get it figured out. And man, it's just, it's a puzzle and it takes time and brain power that I don't currently have. Well, you're also you're also committing yourself to saying, okay, well, I guess we're not going on vacation that week. Well, exactly, it's, and then you, you know, have to check it with everybody. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. yeah, it's a whole it's a whole thing. It is, but you know, but they got to do something, and it's like when they're that I, that age, it very much is like let's explore, right? Well, like, yeah, different and I like you never know what's going to take. You never know, right? And if they if they get a four or five day experience. It's pretty, it's a little intensive, so they know whether they get actual skills out of it. They know whether they like it. And then next year, if we want to do more of that, then we can do it on a regular basis. So I like for them to have it. It's just a a lot to set up. I signed up for one camp in December. I bet you, what was the camp? What kind of a camp was it? It was a, it's a camp down in North Carolina that's awesome. It's very old school. It's like they do archery and swimming and a um, little bit of everything. Yeah. All the good stuff. So they go with their cousins to that one and they have a blast. So. Nice. And that gives anyway. you that gives you and Steve a little time off. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, with half our children. Oh, that's right. Now, really, now it's just really, like. We can really only cut it down by half. Four to two. Uh, that's right. Okay. So, All right. Anyway, that's what I've been up to. Ready for the summer as it hits 80 degrees. Yes. Here today. Right now. Just today. Oh, my goodness. Well, the New York Times was finally ready, Vic. The New York Times was finally ready after all these years. How many summers has it been since COVID? We're on. Yeah, we're, we're heading up on, on our number third, third one, right? Third. Yeah, we're coming up on yeah. our third. So the New York Times was finally ready to print something about the Cochrane Review on masks. Now, it wasn't a news story. Even no, this though, was the A1 above the Even fold. though the Cochr- Cochrane Review on masks is the largest meta-analysis that has been done. It has the most RCTs, randomized control trials, done during the COVID era of any of the studies, most of yeah. which are observational and somewhat flawed. Every study can be flawed, but this one is, you know, huge numbers, takes a, takes a very circumspect look at how masks work. And the New York Times didn't want to report on that, but Brett Stevens the right-leaning opinion columnist at the New York Times, has graced us with a column, the most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, was published late last month. Is that a little dig at the editorial team? Its conclusions, (laughs) said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is its lead author, Mm -hmm. were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told journalist Marianne DeMasi, Full stop. These conclusions were based on 78 randomized control trials, six of them during the COVID pandemic, with a total of 610,000 participants in multiple countries. Well, 
the response to this from New York Times readers. Not, not great. Not great, Vic. No, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I read the piece. I was actually quite surprised, at least when I clicked on the comments, and there are thousands of comments, it was under the, the toggle for all comments, right? right? There are a lot of people who are, uh, you know, uh, accepting that, okay, yeah, oh, fine, this is, this is what it is, or we kind of always knew it. You're telling me you saw other people who were very upset at the study? Yeah, so I think, first of all, I would like to say thank you to the New York Times for actually running this. He evaluates this study. He says, as the study does, that, look, these can work on an individual level. That's sure. not the question we're asking. The question is whether they work on a population level with something like State. a mandate. And the fact is that they do not have evidence to support that. Now, the absence of evidence doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't work, but it strongly suggests that the government should not be used to mandate this yeah. basically useless policy. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you for them running it. And I saw some comments to that effect, but I'd like to read some other comments. Oh, boy. <laughs> I would be, now, before you get to that, I was going to say to add to this, you're talking about how it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, this is the pushback. I was curious, and I'm, I'm curious what these comments are going to say, because I imagine the pushback is, well, you're not saying it worked or it didn't work. Therefore, it's like Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, you know, so you're telling me there's a chance. You right. Know, that, exactly. That's, exactly. That's what it is. Well, as, okay. as Vinay Prasad said, we don't have evidence that we haven't had enough ed evidence to suggest that dancing in the rain naked fights COVID. Right. But like that doesn't right. actually mean anything. We're not right. going to we're not going to come upon that evidence at some point, right. some point. So there were a couple strains of criticism here. One very common one was, oh, Brett Stevens, why don't you tell the surgeon at your next surgery not to wear a mask? That's a good one. So oh. that one came up a lot, a lot, Vic. Actually, a disturbing amount because it's so stupid. The idea that normal people should be subjected to the standards of an OR on a regular basis to buy a croissant right. at the at right. the corner bakery. Right. I right. mean, that's crazy town. Well, and right? it's also the are you a doctor argument. It combines both. Yeah. Like, you know, doctors obviously were. Yeah. Yeah. Uncredentialed was a was a one was, was an aspersion cast. So <laughs> one guy says the virus is more contagious and less deadly now. So mask utility may have changed and there are better treatments and accumulated knowledge of how to treat COVID. I would still want both an infected person and myself to be masked if I were to be near if we were to be near one another. Emergency room staff still wears masks. And if a more dangerous variant emerges, I will wear masks once again. We, we, you know, again, I just to go back to the the OR analogy, yeah. you know, you, you do not have your chest opened. Your chest cavity yeah. is not exposed for, you know, your quintuple bypass right now. Yeah, despite it's despite how Taylor Lorenz tweets about the virus, your yeah. chest cavity yeah. is not actually exposed no. all the no, time. No, no, and, 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 and she's in tears talking about this. Woo, yes. Yeah. Here's another, another strain of argument is, well, people didn't comply properly. So this one says, maybe if everyone in our society had taken the mandates a little more seriously, that study would have had different results. Unfortunately, we had too many people that thought first that the pandemic was fake. Then it was mass mandates infringes upon my freedom, D-U-M-B. Then it was the vaccine is a clot shot. So thank you, Mr. Stevens, and all those like you for helping to stretch this whole thing out and killing a lot more people than it should. Yeah, that's right. 
I was going to say the argument against the fact that the, the ineffectiveness of mask mandates in states like California and Michigan and New York is, well, obviously there were bad actors in those states who were not wearing their masks who got us sick. Yeah. Well, the data says otherwise, by the way, the, pol- the polling on American mask compliance is actually pretty astoundingly high. I'm actually sort of disappointed in us. Where, where is but, it low? I'm going but there. Also, but also, the spikes look the same in states with mandates as they did in states mm-hmm. without mandates. Like, that's yeah. that's just the truth. And the problem with public health is this, this idea that perfect compliance was ever possible is something that is disturbing to me from public health people. What what did you, yeah. whether it's vaccines or masks, what did you think was going to happen in a free country? That do you have the authority to send police after all these people and slam their N95s down on their noses? No, you do not, nor should you. This is not how things were ever going to pan out. So if you want a realistic plan and something that prevents spread, you should plan for some non-compliance. That's that's how yeah. that works. Yeah, unless they're going to solder your door shut. Uh, there's also the if only one person argument. Brett, imagine if only one person were saved by the mask. Then imagine, oh. then imagine yeah. that that one person whose life was saved was your child. Oh, wow. Getting personal. Would you have still written this biased piece? Sometimes in an emergency situation, we err on the side of caution, trying to save lives any way we can. Hindsight gives us a chance to look at a different things and weigh what worked and maybe make changes for the future. I noticed that you didn't call out your buddies for touting the evils of the civic vaccine. I don't know, man. Wow. Okay. Sort and of all over like the place. People who think it's <laughs> this is another one, another version is those who think this is like really disturbing to to write a column that summarizes the findings. Yeah, that's all you're a, doing. You're saying here's this is interesting. Here's this massive study of over six hundred thousand subjects. Yeah, and these are their findings. And just for saying that, attack. Your column sends chills down my spine. Where were you when the page was blank? And now, with the benefit of hindsight that was not there, and even you did not have such knowledge at the moment, how dare you question what was done when we were all doing the best we could to stop death and dying? It wasn't the best because, again, and you, you, you suggest you, you know you touch on this, which is the what the experts really wanted, if you recall was something like three weeks of like a complete isolation shutdown. Do you remember what they really wanted was if we could all not leave our homes to contain the virus. We just don't, no one leave for anything, for any reason. And they would have to find ways for people that have jobs that necessitate you being outside or other things. But if we could just all hold still, then none of us are going to get it. And then you look back and you think about places like New Zealand or Australia. Right. That had, that like who locked laws. down harder than China, New Zealand yeah. and Australia? Yeah. And the, the only thing, the only problem is they're paying a, they pay a price later because they don't have the antibodies or the natural immunity to fight this. Thing. One more genre, which is the anecdata genre. Yeah. Masks don't work. It's merely coincidental that all the people I know who've never had COVID just happen to be really good and consistent mask wearers, but they're just lucky because masks definitely don't work. I mean- I almost replied to this person and was like, everyone I know who didn't get COVID traveled everywhere they wanted to yeah. and never wore a mask. Yeah. So yeah. I, we could play this game if you want to, or we could look at the study 
Right. right. Those are our choices. I always um, want to preface this with two things. One is in the first few weeks, nobody knew anything. I get that. You know, I mean, so everybody was like, okay, wear a mask everywhere you go. Don't leave. Let's don't, nobody come to work because we're not quite sure how this thing is spread. They even, even the insanity of things like closing the beaches. It's not, everybody did this, you know, I mean, there was not, a, you know, every state had some sort of a thing. And it was, the question was, wasn't not doing it at all. The question was, when are we going to realize it's not working and then say, hey, you could come back. And obviously some states came back sooner than others. Well, and I think our problem in the U.S. that that other countries didn't have was that once things became tribal and politicized, modulating was impossible. Mm -hmm. That in a blue state, looking at the data and realizing, as most of Europe did very quickly, that kids could go back to school or that they yeah. didn't require masks on preschoolers, right? Making that turn happened in Europe as it should have after the point where we didn't know very much. But the emotional responses to this piece, which merely summarizes a very professional meta professional meta analysis yeah. of studies, it's so emotional that it's clear we still many sectors have still not been able to modulate. And right. I was never super hung up on masks. But now I look at these comments and I'm like, it's not the anti-maskers who are super hung up on masks, guys. I what yeah. I want is that you need to show me data before you mandate a policy for everyone in for the country. For everyone, right. Yes. Again, you are sick, you're immunocompromised, you know, the elderly. Do what you can to protect yourself, whether it be vaccine or mask, whatever, that's fine. But for the rest of us, it shouldn't just have, it should not have to be you walk into a place, but again, the insanity and, you know, I mean, it starts at the federal level, but then in the state local and then independent businesses, everyone's taking cues all the way from the top and from our health experts, which ultimately leads to going down the supermarket aisle like I did and taking two steps back and a guy at the very end of the aisle yelling at me saying I'm going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, there was a time Obey in the supermarket. Obey the arrows, Vic. Yo, there were arrows. Like, you couldn't go back. You're going the wrong way. You know, and I remember wanting to go the wrong way just to see, you know, and there's nobody there <laughs> as, as a clerk going to say, I just, I just ex entered the wrong way. What is happening? People well, were nuts. Stevens rightly goes after the science trademark and the people oh, who yeah. purvey it. He says, when people say they quote, trust the science, what they presumably mean is that science is rational, empirical, rigorous, receptive to new information, sensitive to competing concerns and risks. Also humble, transparent, open to criticism, honest about what it doesn't know, willing to admit error. The CDC's increasingly mindless adherence to its masking guidance is none of those things. It isn't merely undermining the trust it requires to operate as an effective public institution. It is turning itself into an unwitting accomplice to the genuine enemies of reason and science. I would argue that, like, yeah. they might be witting. I don't know. They're so bad. Yeah, they are. They're, they are. They're truly so bad. We played audio last week of Rochelle Walensky saying, well, we didn't do randomized controlled trials on masks because they work and we knew that. So there's no reason to test it. I mean, that is, yeah. that's science. Yeah. That's, that's the science that I'm supposed to trust. That's and right. lastly, I know this study says that it is like, there's not enough evidence to know, right? And so people are using that as their, yes. as their argument against it. Exactly. However, you had three years of forcing this on everyone. If you didn't run randomized control trials, 
that's on you, man. Yeah. That is on you. Either then, a little bit after, later, or now. Like, yeah. plenty of opportunities to do this, and they just didn't bother because they're so sure of it. By the way, a new Mercatus Center study came out as well, just came out showing also states with mask mandates did not fare any better than those without. So once yeah. again, reinforcing. Yes. But, you know, if only we had a proper police state that could slam that N95 down on your nose. We would have come out of That's, this in yes. three weeks, Vic. Well, again, again, everyone's, you know, the people who are fascinated with China, because if only we had the powers that they had to yeah. force people not to leave. And we could just give them a roll of, a piece of cabbage. Here's a head of cabbage for you for the week. Good luck. We'll be back next week. No. I think some of this is a sunk costs issue as well. Speaking of sunk costs, our oh, reporting boy. in the Free Beacon. New York City officials auctioned 224 million worth of COVID-19 medical equipment for just $500,000, including never used ventilators as scrap oh, metal. That yeah. one hurts, man. It does. Vent Ooh. You know how much these ventilators cost per unit? And do you remember, Mary Catherine, the whole thing about the ventilators? We got to get the ventilators. Oh, that was, the, that was it. That was it. And, and if you way, didn't, there's, people there's, were... People, people were attacked you know like officials politicians were attacked for not getting them not ordering them not giving them and of course ventilators as we soon found out were made things worse for a lot of yeah, people they were not the way to treat it which yeah. again can be an early in the game tragic mistake right sure. yeah but yeah the again, problem nobody is knew we, we 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 held on to those tragic ignorant mistakes and we're like yeah. let's ride with this for a while yeah so the ventilators, 3,000 in total, were commissioned in April 2020 by then-Mayor Bill de Blasio. I'm sure he got a lot of great press for that. For $12 million, they sold to a scrap metal dealer for less than 25000 Blasio called their purchase a, quote, story about doing the impossible. Well, it does <laughs> seem impossible to take something worth $12 million and make it worth 25000 But, you know, government is amazing. It is one of the saddest things when you see that, you know, the ventilators were now, are now branded, quote, non-functioning medical equipment. Ooh. And just, I mean, it's, it, you know, these, it, these are very expensive machines that we're just taking apart now for scrap metal. It's very sad. And it's not just the, the it's not just the ventilators. There's the story about the company that sold 100,000 isolation gowns also to New York City for about 5.6 million unused, right? Almost right. 100,000 gowns. They just sold grand total a thousand bucks, which comes to a penny a gown. And those Maybe. gowns, I remember you because you have to change them out constantly. You can't wear them, you know, like back to back once you're in a room, out of the room. You know, I mean, there was a whole protocol involved. I know I had to go through this at, at the time as well. And it, it, it was a real pain. And you're just disposing so many of these gowns. Well, it looks like there's plenty more. Oh, PPE ain't what it used to be, man. Yeah, no, that's it. Ain't what it used to be. By the way, the city also reported on this and yeah, found it was really the internal, city story. Yeah. internal documents that said that New Yorkers that they were concerned that New Yorkers would be mad about this and that they would ask, quote, about these cities overbuying during COVID. Yeah, one one would hope. I mean, you know, I'm glad that city officials still think that their citizens might be concerned. That's good to know. Yeah, it's good to yeah. Know. yeah, nice. Comforting. Oh, really. well. well, it's not the only time this week, Vic, that the New yes. York Times has shown a little backbone. Uh-oh. Yeah. This is getting crazy. I know. I'm as surprised as you are. What In fact, are you talk? Oh, yeah. we are going to give the New York Times a you love to hear it. Oh, right. Now, this is going to take a little explanation. Okay. 
it's a little back and forth. It's a little among it's among among the journalists, like like, yes. like Michael Corleone would say in Godfather. It's among it was between the brothers, Kate. It was between the journos are arguing. Let me let me see if I can do the real basics. The New York Times has recently been publishing journalism that is more critical of care of minors in the trans and mm-hmm. gender ideology area, right? And again, that something that again, something that Europe does a better job at than the United States. Right. And the New York you know. Times had been, you know, uniformly uncritical of this mm-hmm. until very recently. And all the the treatment of minors and whether they're evaluated for emotional issues and whether we're doing the right thing when most of Europe has realized, oh, I don't know if we're doing the right thing here. And it sort of culminated with this column that defended J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, who That's has right. been criticized, I think, often unfairly. For her comments, just saying like, hey, women should have their own spaces and being a woman is a special yeah. thing. And maybe we shouldn't, you know, allow men, men who are becoming women into all those spaces. Those those comments are widely criticized on the Twitters as being transphobic. Yeah. Many of them are, to my mind, none of them are. And in fact, a Huffington Post journalist also investigated and was like, wait, what has she said that's transphobic? Because I can't really find yeah. it. At any rate, activists and contributors to the paper in two different open letters to the paper, coordinated but two different letters, wrote and said, hey, you guys are not doing right by this issue and we do not appreciate it and you need to change how you are reporting on this. They were they were ticked off about the yes. now more critical coverage of this kind of medical care. Gender affirming medical care. That's right. That's right. Okay. And there were there were a lot of a lot of people uh, were, well the first letter was the one that was signed by all the the, the, the people who were upset by all these stories that were critical of, of, of trans issues. And it was journalists and celebrities combined? Yes, it was yes. contributors to the paper. So people who have written in right. the past. So I think Cynthia Nixon, for instance, has written for the New York Times, and she was okay. on this list as well. Okay. And it's essentially an attempt to bully the Times into not reporting these That's things, right. just right. as... In the summer of 2020, James Bennett, an editor there, was bullied out of a job over a bunch of woke people bullying the paper into not publishing an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton during the the summer of riots in 2020. So it's a similar tactic to that. They want the, the paper to stand down. And wouldn't you know it? The paper said no. Yes. And 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 that that the the original letter I think was also connected to the writers their union the guild I think was yes, connected so, to this so the thus causing the pushback that you're right so the editors respond yeah internally they say we do not welcome and will not tolerate participation by Times journalists in protests organized by advocacy groups or attacks on colleagues on social media and other public forums noting participation in such a campaign is against the letter and spirit of our ethics policy so that was the internal editor response yeah. to the, you know, this original letter or these two original letters right. and journalists being involved with it. So then the Times Guild gets involved. So their union starts messaging that, hey, this is about workplace hostility. Safety, hostility, yeah. And safety, which is the logical conclusion of all this yes, nonsense that words are hurtful That's and right. words are violence is that now if you have a problem with columns or reporting in a newspaper, if you differ on any of those, then then this is a workplace hostility issue for the union. 
Well, in other words, know? so if if you're yeah. if you're saying something we disagree with, it makes us less safe, and therefore you shouldn't run it. And therefore, anything we don't agree with, don't run. Is that it? Uh, yeah, I mean that. That's okay. what's going on here. Just so checking. It, it turns out that the journalists said, "Nah," which I'm so proud of them. Even There's the ones I mean, again, who have they're not they're, they're we're not talking about a bunch of you know conservatives over there. No, but even they. Nah, I assume that they're all uh, a little bit on the older side, but even they are like enough. Right? Yeah, they've had so it. So there's a there's pushback, and the letter comes from among them are Peter Baker, Charlie yeah. Savage, Kate Zernicki. Mm -hmm. Your letter appears. This is to the guild. The Your letter appears to suggest a fundamental misunderstanding of our responsibilities as journalists. Regretfully, our own union leadership now seems determined to undermine the ethical and professional protections that we depend on to guard the independence and integrity of our journalism. My goodness. Yeah. Again, this goes back to the James Bennett story, right? When they published yep. the Tom Cotton op-ed after the George Floyd riot saying that we need to, you know, call in the National Guard, call in the military when needed, where needed to protect these people and, you know, to stop the destruction of these cities and immediately, you know, set, set off, as you, as you mentioned, this huge uproar within the time staff. And the bottom line was that they said, the critics of the op-ed said that their black colleagues are now less safe. Not even feeling less safe, but just matter of fact, this op-ed by Tom Cotton has made them less safe. How? Yep. That's what I want. How? Is somebody going to storm the editorial page offices now? What, what is going on here? And it, and it's it, it's really along the same lines as Margaret Sullivan, formerly of the Washington Post, the ombudswoman, and a whole younger generation that say, you know, objective journalism is so 20th century, right? It is so a thing of the past. We're done with it. It's not a matter of both saying, okay, this side says this and the other side says this. Nope. There's a good side and a, bad, a right and a wrong. Right. We are on the side of right. Democracy is going to die in darkness, which I know is the post, not the times, but same idea. And therefore, we're taking a side. And it's either because, you know, some situation is right versus wrong or it's a matter of safety. Either way, if we don't like the facts, we're not going to report them. Now, Bennett at the time in 2020 was sort of unceremoniously ousted. Yeah. He was forced to resign. He apologized for the op-ed, but oh. a, around about two years later, because the press is really so fast when it comes to evaluating itself. itself. Around two years later, Bennett talked to Ben Smith at Semaphore, and there's basically a journalism-wide agreement, even if it's mm. a little bit quiet, that things went too far with James Bennett. Yeah. Like, that maybe the editorial page editor should not have been ousted over running an op-ed by a United States Senate. And that maybe listening to the people who tell you that that's violence yeah. is not a great idea. So I think this is a reaction to that. And I appreciate these journalists actually being the yeah. grown-ups in the room. Well, it's, it's, Lord it's, knows they need some. It's a, real, it's a real battle in the newsroom. And I've heard from other people who say similar things at other publications where, you know, now, it's now a majority of the newsroom that's young, very woke, and they don't believe in this whole objective journalism business that we've been in all this time, and that they're afraid of upsetting them because they will overrun the place. Well, you yeah, know, but you're already no letting them run, you know. In, well, and there's no quicker way to grasp power yeah. as a young staffer at one of these places than to assert that you have been injured oh. Oh, yeah. by, these, by the someone's words. Yeah. And then the olds get ousted and you end up 
moving up the chain, right? There's actually new reporting on this, which is just so delicious. And Steve Krakauer's book. So he's, um, among other things, Megyn Kelly's executive producer. And he wrote a book called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Yep. It's, it's coming out this week. But he talked to a former Times staffer, Sean McCreesh, who describes it, the Bennett uproar like this. There was like this giant communal Slack chat for the whole company that became sort of a digital gallows. And all these angry, backbiting staffers were gathering there and demanding that heads roll. And the most bloodthirsty of the employees were these sort of weird tech and audio staffers. And then a handful of people who wrote for like the arts and leisure section and the style section in the magazine, which in other words, you know, it was no one who was actually out covering any of the protests or the riots or the politics. It was just sort of like a bunch of Twitter brained crazies kind of running wild on Slack. And the leadership was so horrified by what was happening. They just completely lost their nerve. That is. That's Such right. That's exactly. Such a perfect description. He also called it a Maoist struggle session. Yes, a Maoist struggle session. And, and journalists were crying. I mean, this is where we're at. Well, I think yeah. the people who actually do cover the politics and were on the ground covering that kind of thing and don't want to be bossed about by the audio and tech staffers yeah. and the leisure writers are now taking a stand. And although I will, you know, definitely critique their reporting in the future, <laughs> as I always have. I appreciate that this is a real, this is actually a grown up move. And it, it seems like a low bar because it is, but it we is, need, it, it, we need grown ups in the newsrooms. But it remains unclear to me who's going to win because yeah. still, you know, we're only getting older. At least I am. I don't know about you. <laughs> They're going to oust us any minute, Vic. I know. Let's be real. <laughs> That's what the Gen right. Z loves. Right. Okay. Speaking of shaming people into doing things. Pete Buttigieg finally showed up in East Palestine. Yay. By the way, was I doing the elitist thing where I said Palestine when it's actually Palestine? Yeah. Palestine. Yeah. That's fine. Look, this is all over the all over the country. We have strange pronunciations. Uh, yeah, I, I, cities. I where you're from, it's not people don't say Durham, do they? They say No, just Durham. Durham. And never Durham. Raleigh Durham. They're two separate cities, all right? People Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Albany, Georgia is a good one. People oh. get hung up on that one. Oh well what well, well, as opposed to saying all, it's all Benny. Oh, all Benny. Okay. Well, you know, where I'm from, there's a, a town that if you looked at it the way it's spelled, it would be Forked River, but it's not. It's Forked. Oh, that's Forked, charming. Forked River. I, I made the mistake when I first got to LA of pronouncing things with what would be the accent in Spanish, like Sepulveda Road. Nope. It's not. That is Sepulveda. Oh, um, you're kidding and, me. Okay. And Los Feliz is Los Feliz. Oh, that's funny. Like Houston in New York, in, in New York yes, City, Houston. exactly. Anyway, this is, this is slightly secondary to the yes. disaster on the ground in Ohio. So Pete Buttigieg, who is the much maligned Department of Transportation head, who really truly... Look, I don't think that cabinet members work miracles or that they necessarily should be held responsible for mm-hmm. every little thing because I don't think the federal government can fix every little thing. However, this man is so behind on everything, just as a rule. Yeah. So n- nearly three weeks after the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that led to the release of toxic chemicals, this is February 3rd that happened. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is finally visiting. He was on the ground this week, 20, some, 20 plus days since it happened. He first tweeted about it a week and a half after it happened. And he's now on the ground saying like, hey, you know, was I a little bit late? 
Maybe so, but I was just trying to do the right thing. And since he's a Democrat, I'm sure that will be a fine answer. But here's a little bit of him on the ground there. Look, again, I'm here for the work and not for the politics. Uh, You can sense when you talk to local leaders and local residents that they're getting pretty sick of the politics, too. And this national uh, uh, ideological layer that's been added into all of this when they're just trying to figure out if they're going to be safe. Ready for primetime, that one. So good. I was going to say about the, the, the Secretary of Transportation, let's keep in mind during the labor union threat to strike, was on vacation in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And of course, he took a couple of months off for paternity leave during the supply chain crisis. Right. And when this happened, of course, you know, he was discussing real things, real things that matter, like why are construction crews so white? Yeah. That's, well, someone, that's really what matters. Someone from the Daily Caller, I believe, caught him on the street in D.C. The, yes. night bef- the night before he went to Ohio or two nights before he went to Ohio. I don't know if it had been announced yet that he was going to Ohio, but this this person from the Daily Caller is perpetrating some journalism on Pete Buttigieg, and he does not like it. Here he is walking with his husband in D.C. and being asked some questions. Secretary, what do you have to say? Hi, how are you? Jenny Chair at the Daily Caller News Foundation. What do you have to say to the folks in Ohio, East Palestine, who are suffering right now? Well, I'd refer you to about a dozen interviews I've given today, and uh, if you'd like to arrange a conversation. Uh, make sure to reach out to our press office, but I'm not going to have that conversation with you. Just walk you don't have a message here. for them? I do, and I shared it with the press many times today. I'd refer you to those comments. Would you mind sharing it with us? No, I'm going to refer you to the comments that I made to the press because uh, right now I'm taking some personal time and I'm walking down the street. Are you going down there? <clears throat> What's up? Are you going down there at all? Um, yep, yeah, I am. When are you going? Uh, I'll share that uh, when I'm ready. Okay, I'll talk thank down the street. you. Can I get a- Right now I'm taking some personal time and I'm walking down the street. This guy was supposed to be real smart, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was supposed to be possibly, uh, I heard he was rumored to be Obama's favorite candidate in 20. Yeah, I actually Uh, have to, I have to criticize myself in hindsight because I remember when he was running, I thought like, he seems to have thought through some issues a little bit, but I think what he actually did is he, he modeled himself after Obama, he delivers yeah. sentences like Obama. He's very professorial. Oh, yeah. yeah. And look, there you were have times... to commit. You have to commit the platitudes to memory. Yes. And you just throw them out there, man. Just like, you know. Um... Like Nuke Lelouch. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, He's the wow. nuke. Is he the Nuke Lelouch? Yeah. That's yeah. too cool. It's too cool That's, to be the uh... Nuke Lelouch. Anyway, but like this, this is a situation that could be remedied. That That moment on the street is a situation that could be remedied by just repeating what you said. To other yeah. reporters that's it and then you move on with your life but he refuses to do it because daily caller news foundation doesn't count he's a very smart cool guy in the biden administration so he doesn't need to give her an answer and do i believe that he was deeply interested in a disaster in ohio before he tweeted about it no i i really don't i i think he's interested in running for president and probably not much more yeah it's always amazed me that you know people were had had, had glommed on to the mayor of the fourth largest city of Indiana as being the future because he all had, you know, again, packaged the right things, you know, to say. But in fact, it's funny when he is talking to the Daily Caller journalist, he was clearly in the off mode. Right. And there are politicians like this. And a good friend of mine, his wife ran into 
now former mayor of D.C., Anthony Williams. Remember Anthony Williams? Yeah. And was at a convenience store. She was very excited to meet him. Total jerk. Oh. There's no cam because there's no cameras. Yeah. He doesn't have to be on. And so I guess it was a moment like that. But I just wonder if Pete Buttigieg just, you know, I don't know. I mean, he finally went good, but maybe he just didn't want to go. I was thinking maybe he was like Stellan Skarsgård in Chernobyl. Yeah. Well, like, do I do I have to? Do I have well, to go? I, well, I, and I'm I am I again I am open to the argument that like look we've got people on the ground there mm -hmm. and they're doing work. The only agency that I can tell got there or was saying anything fairly quickly was NTSB, the National mm -hmm. Transportation Safety Board. They seem to have gotten there fairly early, but it was a very low level concern from anyone else for what is a very big problem. Yeah. The, the first three to five days of this incident, which got very little coverage and you started to see pictures coming out of Twitter. And I remember the first time I saw some of these pictures saying, this can't be real because if this were, this would be a bigger news story. Yeah. I mean, the the pictures are so dramatic as yeah. to look like they might be Photoshopped. That's how dramatic they yeah, are. That's, that's well, right. there was another guy in East Palestine oh, boy. before Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. He beat him out. His name is Donald Trump. Now, yeah. I am no big Donald Trump fan. It's quite obvious. However, he does have a way of putting his finger on what's going to work yeah. politically and the places that are, frankly, being ignored, which was part of his pitch, right? Like, yeah. hey, yeah, I'm the, I, they always used to try to say, oh, but he's a rich guy. Why do why do people in rural areas like him? He's he's no populist. He's faking this. His whole pitch was, yeah, sure. I'm a big, rich business guy. Also, I don't hate you. Yeah, that was the pitch. That's right. I do not despise you. I do not look down upon you. And they get the feeling, I think, rightly, a lot of the time that many of the other technocrats that populate the government and this administration do mm -hmm. look down on them. So he That's shows right. up in East Palestine. The framing by the New York Times is, of course, negative. <laughs> it was evocative of the former president's time in office, an at times meandering address punctuated by self-promotion, his brand name Trump Water, and an undercurrent of grievance. <laughs> But it takes a turn. But I didn't, as, I didn't know it was Trump water. By the way, also, this is all to set up the fact that, like, the guy visited the place yes, that the other yes. guys have not visited. That's right. But as he visited the small Ohio town of East Palestine on Wednesday, former President Donald J. Trump sought to hammer home a message just by showing up that his successor and the man he's seeking to replace, President Biden, had been ineffective in responding to a domestic crisis after a train derailed and spewed toxic chemicals earlier this month. Mr. Trump had arrived on the ground before either Mr. Biden or the Transportation sec Secretary to a train derailment. Many Republicans have turned into a referendum yeah. on a lack of federal concern with the needs of red state America. They mm. have pounced, Vic. They pounced. Yeah. yeah, they did again. They did again. So uh, here's, here's what I love about this story, because not, not only does he bring pallets of water, which, again, I didn't know until just now that it was Trump water, but he brought McDonald's. My fave. And who's going to, you know, who's going to turn that down? You know, you get votes just for giving somebody McDonald's. Nobody's mad about that. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's, and again, he's in safe territory, right? I mean, I am sure this particular congressional district must have voted very handily for, uh, for Donald Trump in 2020. Trump is amazing in the fact that he, see, you know, for his age, he seems to not have any problems processing McDonald's food. This is really my the thing that I'm fascinated by. Is it is it if you if you leave out alcohol, are you allowed to have all yeah. the McDonald's you want? I think is that there's, how probably, it works? there's probably yeah. something like he's like this guy, Don Gorski, who has been eating McDonald's every day since 1972. Yeah, you know, and he's still going on. He's like, oh, he's going to be him. 70. He's going to be Good 70 for him. this year. And I think Trump and his genetic 
makeup is very similar in that, you know, he has no problems with it. I'll have a McDonald's on occasion now. Not, it's not often anymore. And when I do, you feel great at the moment because it hits all those spots, right? And you're, you know, in your tongue, you're just like setting them off. You're in total bliss. And then in the afternoon, you feel kind of feel a little bit blah, you know? Yeah. According I mean, I to, can't, yeah. I can't say that I feel anything other than. Well, you're fine. Maybe you're closer delight. to Trump in your, in I, your I might, I might genetic be, composition. Although my, my baby has decided I'm not allowed to eat my trash diet anymore. Oh, so I'm how upset dare, about that. How dare, how dare baby. Here's what I think is interesting after I was reading about. Trump in Palestine and bringing the McDonald's because he genuinely loves McDonald's. You ever see sometimes famous people will go into places for the first time and they don't know what to do, right? I think there's a story of Jim Buckley when he was running for Senate in New York, going to McDonald's and asking about the Chablis, you know, or something yeah. awkward like that. Or or I, th- I think John Kerry. Do you have yeah, any yeah, crudite? We know that John Kerry had a similar story, I think, about, you know, what kind of cheese to order on his Philly cheesesteak. But in, in, the, in the, the two versions I heard about this for Trump, what he likes at McDonald's from Corey Lewandowski, and also from Jared Kushner. And it's basically a variation of a Big Mac filet of fish or as he likes to call it, the fish delight, and a chocolate, he does, I don't know why he calls it that, and a chocolate shake. But sometimes they say Trump will have two Big Macs and two fish fillets. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's insane. It's a surf and turf, but it's it's a real surf and turf extravaganza. Anyway, that's really um, all I wanted to say about Trump being there, but yeah. Well- Again, the New York Times, not exactly super straight reporting this. They, they of course, go into the derailment and its aftermath, have also focused attention on Mr. Trump's own environmental policies and cuts to regulations, which weirdly didn't send yeah. trains off the track yeah. while he was president. They waited until Biden was president. And this is the part that I love, the knock at his empathy, which yeah. I don't disagree with in general, but like. Yeah, I mean, it's listen, a political move, like, right? And I while mean, while Mr. Trump sometimes showed up at disaster sites as president, his ability to be empathetic has never been a strong suit. Although everyone there is welcoming him with opening arms and saying we really appreciate yeah. him being here. The New York Times. Mr. Trump's visit to East Palestine was far more traditional and subdued, though he still appeared to struggle with showing empathy in public. They would tell you, however, that Joe Biden is the empathy pres- president. Oh. Like that everything about yeah. him is empathetic. Yet... Yeah. What is he doing to be empathetic? He's nowhere near here. He's not talking about it. Yeah. He, in a somewhat troll move, was riding on a train in Ukraine for 20 hours. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's nice that those trains work. You know, you know what Trump doesn't do? It's true. Trump does not smell women's hair. No. He doesn't do that. That's true. Look, that is an empathetic move. It's empathetic move. move. Okay. That's how I'm going to say that next time. In order for, in order for voters to feel biden's empathy mm. they need to feel the heat of his breath on their hair that's, that's, that's right. how that works now mary Catherine, do we do we do we have time to talk are we hitting the fence do we have time to talk about the juror the grant the i mean i think we should woman? okay okay I think let's, we should. let's 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 get we can, we can keep it really... short okay this is really something go once okay. tell, tell tell our do our listeners know what's happening here this is something I, i'm not i'm not sure so let, here we go a young woman She's actually 30. I shouldn't say young. She's woman 30, she's, but she looks very young. She looks she's, like she's 16. This is one of my thoughts about this. We'll, we'll get into it. She is the. This is a fe- special two hour episode of Getting Hammered. She, the next hour is strictly about this woman. A young woman who is the forewoman, foreman, foreperson. Yeah, foreman, I would of say. Of the Georgia grand jury that is working on figure, investigating whether Trump and allies interfered in elections and need to be indicted in the state of Georgia, right? So this woman, Emily, what's her last name? Coors. Coors. Emily Coors is the 
410, she's leading this grand jury. Yes. The indictments have not come down. There is, if there are any, there's a report. She is, and all the other grand jurists are, of course, kept from speaking in great detail about this. Mm-hmm. But before the indictments, if there are any, had come down, Emily decided she would go on a media tour. And I... I don't know where it started. I'm I'm wondering if it started with the Atlanta Journal Constitution because they did a, a sort of a deeper profile on her that called her oh. like energetic with a red vape. And it's like, oh my God, what are we doing? Anyway, then then she starts making the rounds. So she's on MSNBC and she's on CNN. Now, this is problematic because she's casting doubt on this whole process by going public. There's a reason yeah. that you don't do that so i'm gonna i'm gonna play a little bit of audio and you you tell us dear listeners how much confidence you have in the situation let's see this is kate baldwin at cnn interviewing her let's see what we got here well thank you for having me first of all and i'm i'm hesitant to speak to something that the judge made a decision not to share he uh i don't know if everyone's aware of this but there was a hearing um about what parts of the report should and should not be published in its various forms. And the list, well, the sections that were removed were consciously chosen to be removed. And I don't want to say I have better judgment than the judge. That's totally understandable. Vic, what is happening here? (laughs) Well, I mean, what the listeners really need to do is, our listeners need to do is see the video of her because she makes... So many interesting, and I will say interesting, facial expressions. So interesting that even Stephen Colbert on his show said that he would like to invite her anytime to the late show, dot, 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 to play poker. <laughs> because eh, she, eh, she, it, it's, she's goofy, and, and it's interesting. I have a lot of well, thoughts, but why don't you go first, Mary well, Catherine, as she's I still doing am this. processing. She's doing this childish, coy thing. Yes, coy. She's coy. Where she knows she can't say a lot, but she's taken her national media lap, yeah. which, again, I think is irresponsible if you're on the jury, on the grand jury. And first of all, I was shocked. Like, how are we 30 and we're acting like this? And <laughs> and then and then again, she's, she says at one point to MSNBC, and we can find, we can run audio of that that it'd be really cool to just like subpoena Donald Trump and get to swear him in. Okay, <laughs> like, here's the, what is here's happening. My, let me, here's my, my favorite part of that about that particular the clip, and I think it's on a different show where she says, "Oh, it would have been really cool to swear him in." She says it. She throws in a very slight English accent when she does this part. <laughs> she goes, "Do you swear?" And then she goes back to her normal accent and i thought this is this is so crazy i couldn't get enough of it i don't know if there's anything necessarily illegal about what she did because this is like a georgia special investigative grand jury this is not a federal grand jury the rules are different and i mean obviously the defense can point to her media tour and say look this is a biased jury and we need to throw the whole thing out but it really depends on whether or not the indictments come down and it's also unclear how i don't think she's clear cut, I hate Trump. You know, it's not all over her, her Instagram. In fact, what people seem to be talking about, I think, is that she's really into the Wiccan thing. But, you know, that's that's her thing. But, you know, she talks about being excited to meet Rudy Giuliani and then being charmed by Lindsey Graham. So 
Right. I just it's think more she's... just odd and ill-advised. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I will say, for the media, you know, if this turns into the defense for Donald Trump, as they should, saying this has corrupted the process, and you know that the media doesn't get their man, which mm-hmm. let's face it, is Donald Trump. That's what they want, and this girl is deemed the problem in any sort of way. This is a problem of their own making because yeah. this young woman knows that as long as she dangles Trump's demise in front of reporters, that she will be put on oh. with no critical follow-up whatsoever no. on whatever TV show she wants to be on. So once you created that environment and that incentive, of course, she's going to be there for it. Yeah, that's right. And use uh, her English yeah. accent. Here she is talking about us swearing in. Personally, want to hear from the former I president. I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in. I just, I kind of just thought that it. would be an awesome moment. That's... It's like, it's oh. like everyone, yeah. char- every single person, and she's, Definitely not the worst actor on this list. Every single person charged with being a reliable narrator or making us feel good about the processes and yeah. and the the official processes and that they're being conducted by adults and by people who are soberly going over facts. Every single one of them is committed to acting the opposite. Yes, I I, I can't remember if we've had discussions about juries on this show. Have you? Have you been ever selected to serve on jury? I can't remember. I never have been, and I have what? never even been oh. summoned at all. You didn't even which, get to the voir dire. No, yeah. and I don't. I don't know if that's because I've always shown up as like a public figure. If there's a flag on me or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when I was younger, also nothing. And I know I'd, I'd probably be tossed out quickly because I work in media. But no, I've, I've never been. I've been a witness in an assault case one time, but that's it. Oh. It wasn't that juicy. <laughs> okay. All right. Mm, feel free to share. I was, I, I served twice on a jury and once as the foreman of a jury. Ooh, uh, Vic the and, foreman. It, what, I, you know, and I didn't want it, but the rest Another of the round jury, of martinis. <laughs> you know, you have to vote on it and they all voted for me. What can I say? I didn't ask for it, but you know, I just draw in the votes. There is nothing more. It, 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 it's a very, I'm just going to say it's, it was a very weird experience to be the one when the jury, when the judge says, how do you find the defendants? And you say, guilty. And so the first case, I was on a jury. We found a defendant not guilty of basically accidentally stabbing a drug dealer. You know, it, it was, it's a very, it was a very Who unfortunate story. Who among us? Who among us? He said he fell on, but there were no, they, they had like no medical evidence. So it's like, well, there's only so much we can work with. Yep. And the, it was very sad. And then the second one is about these and whether or not they were committing trespassing. And it was a whole to do in the city. And I just remember why haven't I heard everybody was being excused because if you were, were familiar with the story, they didn't want you on the jury. And I was right. not at all. I said, how can I not be familiar? I'm in this. Turned out the whole thing happened while I was on honeymoon. And so it was like, oh, that's how I forgot. See, but, never, never leave the news cycle, Vic. Yeah, that's right. Love, never, even on honeymoon. But here's the crazy thing. On one of the cases, you know, well, in all the cases, you go around and it's, you know, we're a quirky bunch. These, you know, uh, Drake, myself included, weird. 
but you go around and you have to go, okay, now that we're done with this, how do we find? And until we're all to a man or woman, guilty or innocent, then you can't leave. And so you'd go around guilty, guilty, innocent, innocent, guilty, not, not guilty, whatever. Why? Why do you think that? And then you have this discussion on and on. At one point, you know, towards it was like day two or day three of deliberations. And it was guilty, guilty, guilty. And then we get to this woman and she goes, fine, guilty. Then you can't say that. That's part of the process, right? right. It's like- and then so people are wondering, you know, your, hand, your, your, your lives are in these people's, our yeah. hands. Yeah. And a prof- it was a professor and he was, and he was It's like, a justice Whoa. of attrition. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, whoa. And he's like, you cannot say this. And she's like, look, I just can't stay here anymore. I got to get out of here. I guess she had a breakdown. But finally, we went through it, man. It was crazy. This is many years ago. But anyway, maybe it made her a little bit crazy. Who knows? Okay. I was briefly in this deluxe edition of Getting Hammered. Yes. I will tell you yeah. that I was a I was a, a a witness briefly in an assault case in the District of Columbia because at a Veterans for Freedom gathering in 2008 or nine, back during mm-hmm. the height of war protesting, a an anti-war protester crashed this event Vets for Freedom was putting on. And in the process of crashing, he ran through a group of people to the stage. And the allegation was that he had assaulted someone on the way to the stage. To my mind, it was like he just went by some people and through some people. It was not, did not rise to the level of assault in my mind. But I was there videotaping and reporting. So I was asked to, I talked to the lawyers for the defense. And then, you know. So you were a witness for the defense. Yes. And I was, you know, up on the, you know, I was on the stand. And I will say what I came away most of all with from that experience was Mm -hmm. wasn't super impressed with the lawyers. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no. I was uh, like, aren't aren't these people supposed to be smarter than I am? We watch a lot of like, you know, whatever it be, Law and Order or any of these, you know, legal thrillers and dramas. And we have this image in our head that it's like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And I remember in one of the cases being like, totally like, they totally forgot to mention this, or how come there's no evidence about that? And, and then what happens after, after, the, after the verdict and you're done, you're excused, you walk out, the other side, the losing side, they come up to you as jurors and they just want to, they want to know why you voted that way. Ooh. But they're very, they're very friendly. And they just nod and they take notes. That's all. Because, you know, for a lot of them, it's, you know, the prosecutors. It's yeah, the they got to learn, I guess. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Okay. All right. <laughs> part of the justice system. Look at us. We okay. were. We were. We were. We do our part. Do our civic duty. That wraps up another edition of Getting Hammered. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And you can follow me on Twitter at Victorina Mattis. I'm at MK Hammer on Twitter, MK Hammer Time on Instagram. Actually, you can watch. I made a little reel yesterday using the sound bites from that glorious Emily course. So you can check, check that out. <laughs> I'm going to check it out. Everybody have a great day. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for getting hammered responsibly on this, this extra special episode. We'll see you next time. This has been a Nebulous Media Podcast. 